This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today is another co-host, Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of sale and investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have uh, another interesting show lined up for you today. We've got a, a great quantitative research firm, uh, Alpha Letters, joining us in the first half of the program. We were talking about Peter Bookvar, uh, a macro strategist, CIO, uh, in the second half of the show. Uh, Professor, though, um, another interesting week. We got some GDP data. We've got the S and P, you know, getting above twenty eight hundred, coming back below now. But what, what's your thoughts on on what's what's going on? Yeah, the GDP, a little bit of a surprise uh, on the upside. Um, And uh, as as we talked about last week, it did make Q4 over Q4, uh, GDP for 2018 over 3%, which is a a good performance. Um, Unfortunately, composition of the data we're getting keeps on nudging down what we expect here in the first quarter. Uh, the people I follow now say it's going to be in the very low 1% uh, region, which is uh, certainly uh, disappointing. Again, no recession. Uh, jobless claims, uh, though choppy, are not surging upward. Um, uh, you know, we, we, get, we get a weak uh, uh, one indicator like housing starts and then we get another home sales that looks a little bit better. So I think the uh, the economy is on hold more than anything else. Um, nothing is really pushing it forward right now. And uh, that makes me think that earnings are going to be uh, just slow growth. And um, uh, basically, as I said, a choppy market. We do have a little upside now. Um, uh, but I, I think the rest of the year is really going to be maybe up 5% from where we are today. Uh, Fed on hold um, and the long bond staying in the two and three quarter percent range. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the tenure from all of February sort of balanced between 270, 275. It's sort of ticking back up a little bit. I mean, the highs on the year were around 280. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, just sort of ticking up back here again more recently. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, uh, that's pretty much what we are going to expect. And of course, we're going to get the labor report next week, and that's always an important report, obviously. 
uh, and we're going to see if we could keep on nudging that participation rate upward so we can continue to absorb 200, 250,000. But I'll tell you, um, one thing that might be disappointing this first quarter, if we, in fact, only get one to one and a half percent GDP growth, given all the job, job creation, uh, we're going to have almost a zero productivity growth. And so that little bump of productivity got 2018, certainly in the first quarter of this year, looks like it has died out. Um, and one quarter is not uh, the beginning or end of it, but we really have a hard time seeming to sustain any sort of productivity push uh, at this particular uh, juncture. Internationally, again, slow, slowless, uh, slow growth in, in Europe. Um, uh, again, the best news is probably still China on valuation, still positive on emerging markets as a group. Um, but uh, uh, I would say Europe is still in a slow growth mode, and the United States is at a uh, fully priced level, not a threatened level, but one where it's hard to see what's going to keep on pushing stocks up from here. Now, interesting comments on China overnight. MSCI is looking at adding the, the A shares. You know, there was a big consultation on it, and they're only about 5% yeah. inclusion of A shares and less than 1% in a broad index, but they're moving up in three tranches this year up to what they call a 20% inclusion factor for A shares in their general China indexes and 3% in broad EM indexes. Uh, sort of interesting, interesting with That's your. That's true. And of course, the, the of course, people, yeah, one, one has to realize that they have been bought up. In anticipation of that, uh, just like when a stock gets uh, added to the S&P 500, there are arbitrageurs who buy it up in advance and then hand it over to the index, index uh, uh, passive index funds when it actually is included. So uh, it's, it doesn't mean that we're going to get an upward movement necessarily from this point down, but certainly I think some of the recovery that we've seen in the China market was due to this uh, well-anticipated inclusion in the index. Yeah, and it's going to take all throughout this year. So it's it's one of those stories that it's going to to be with us for a little while. And I'm glad it's being added at a reasonable valuation. I mean, and you know, we're we're adding, I think, China 10 to 12 times earnings, not at 50 times earnings uh, as it was a few years ago at the market peak. Uh, That's, this will be good for the emerging market indexes. Very good. Any other uh, sort of final thoughts for this week? No, I'm going to we'll report on uh, next week's uh, labor market report, which I think uh, will really set the tone for uh, the rest of March. Very good. Thanks for, uh, for joining us for some commentary. Thank you. Bye. So, Lee Chen, I know you and I fo- focus on the sort of China news. Uh, any, do you have any thoughts on, on the recent additions? Um, I think uh, I think one interesting thing is that you know a lot of estimates are coming saying that there will be close to sixty to eighty billion flows into Asia, but the truth is a lot of firms, just like Professor mentioned, you know, Wisdom Tree being one of those, that a lot of strategies already added like China share up to twenty percent. Um, so it is um, the, it is harder to to say that you know it, this potential flow will be necessary or manifest uh, by itself because a lot of firms that anticipation of this index has already uh, added. Um, um, this is where I think you know cap weighted index is not necessary. Um, 
the way to go from my point of view is that you know you are if you are cap weighted index investor only you are kind of a uh, you know, be beholden to a uh, index provider who may have political pressure. You know, there's some talk uh, about in China that whether MSCI added because there's political pressure from Chinese government. Um, last year, Asia was you know not doing very well, and Chinese government wants the equity market to you know to to do well as well. So I think um, those will be that kind of... Uh, but the interesting thing I want to mention is that China just got uh, the new uh, SEC chairman. Um, and in China, the name uh, usually means kind of a, some kind of meaning in the person's name. So this new SEC uh, uh, chairman's last, uh, first name means like going to be full, which is uh, kind of a good connotation. So in China, there's also some positive mm. uh, sentiment uh, around this. Um, Very good. No, it's uh, it's interesting. It, it, despite the, it was a big rally this week on Monday, you know, there was a, China was up 5 6%, and it was, part, you know, the, there was headlines from the trade negotiation over the weekend. That was one of the things that there was talks about China relevering their banks was another positive catalyst that a lot of the sort of small cap Chinese banks were up 10% on Monday. And then you have this MSCI edition this week. So there's a lot of a lot of stories there. And I think, you, like you said, if you're not one of the major index providers, you could have gotten ahead of it. It's one of the things that we had thought about last year, trying to add more A shares uh, ahead of MSCI adding it. So it's, it's uh, one, one benefit for people who could be a little bit more nimble there. Um, let's bring on one of our, our first guests here. We're going to have Kelvin Zhang. He's a partner at Alpha Letters LLC, a quantitative research company serving fund investors worldwide. Uh, Kevin joined Alpha Letters in 2014, leads its research, product development, an MBA from the Wharton School, class of 03, sort of my year here at Wharton. Kelvin, welcome to our, our program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's great to have you. And Li Chen, I guess, has some background with you, so maybe I'll... I'll let you, how how do you guys know each other, Li Chen? Um, well, we kind of know each other through personal relationship. Okay. Uh, we, I I knew his wife, and uh, <laughs> so, so <laughs> that's how we got. Uh, and he was uh, um, maybe Calvin. You can tell us a little bit of your portfolio management experience, and that's where we you know kind of uh, talk to each other. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, so. Like Jeremy said, I'm a uh, graduate from Wharton in 03, and uh, I want to believe that uh, Wharton is the number one school worldwide. And uh, um, after Wharton, I joined uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, first at the Merrill Lynch Investment Management, and which was later acquired by BlackRock. And uh, uh, after that, I was with the TIAA, uh, one of the largest asset management companies uh, in the country. Um, uh, at both companies, I was a quant researcher slash quant PM. Um, so that's uh, that's my um, uh, background in uh, Nasha. Yeah. So um, currently, your uh, your firm uh, that you are partner with, uh, tell us a little bit of that, and also tell us like how do you differentiate yours from you know the typical um, you know cell side research that we got? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so Alpha Letters uh, has been serving fund investors worldwide since two thousand five. And uh, um, I, I think everybody will believe that many of the mainstream quant ideas come from academia. Uh, you can name, um, you can talk about momentum, you can talk, uh, talk about value. So each year there are tens of thousands of uh, professors worldwide, um, professors plus PhDs plus uh, um, you, you know, bloggers, and they all have great, great ideas. 
So the mission of Alpha Letters is to find great ideas from public domain to our own analysis, send it to our clients. Yeah, so um, maybe you can give us some examples. So, for example, you mentioned uh, you know, some trends in the academic research. Um, for example, you mentioned something related to quantum mental and sector-based research. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so because the, um, um, it's our daily job to talk with uh, quant investors or uh, fundamental investors that are interested in quantitative methodologies, we have a reasonably good idea of what are some of the hot topics um, out there. And a couple of things I want to share with you um, is that uh, uh, num- number one, the um, uh, so-called alternative data has been such a big topic these days for very good reasons. I think one of the reasons is that uh, um, if you, um, I, I personally believe that if you torture a data set long enough, um, like the um, price volume, price uh, stock price and stock volume data has been studied back and forth by thousands of PhDs for decades, um, to extent that you can get whatever you want to get. That's so-called the uh, data snooping or data mining bias. So many investors are looking into new data sets, so-called uh, um, alternative data. Uh, one quick example I can give, uh, I can share with you is that uh, there are. Um, quite some companies that will look into the credit card spending of, uh, let's say, 5 to 10 million uh, consumers in this country. So by looking at their daily transactions, and by, let, let's say, if I can use Chipotle as an example, let, let's say 5% of these 10 million consumers um, go to Chipotle this month, but 11% of these people went to Chipotle last month, so you can have a very good idea that uh, the revenue of uh, Chipotle may be going down. And this is a whole new data set, which, one, make a lot of intuitive sense. So there is a strong economic rationale behind it. Two, it's new, meaning that it has not been as exploited as the traditional data set. So many of the companies that we talk with are extremely interested in uh, uh, alternative data. I mentioned credit card data, and there are other data sets like a satellite image. Um, by looking at the, um, uh, by, by by looking at the um, luminosity of a say Chinese coastline, you can see that during the financial crisis period ten years ago, exactly ten years ago, the luminosity of the Chinese coastline is a lot darker during night. That's because Night times usually when people go out and uh, and uh, consume different uh, products or, or services, and uh, again this type of satellite data was not there before. It makes lots of intuitive sense. It has not been widely used, so um, people are very interested in um, this kind of new data set. So that's alternative data. The other idea I want to um, bring up is so-called quantum mental or so-called sector-based quant. Uh, one trend we certainly see is that uh, fund investors uh, are trying to team up their quant analysis with their fundamental analysis with the purpose to, uh, of uh, quantifying or, or mimic the behavior of a top fundamental analyst by marrying the, um, the um, uh, good qualities of a 
two, these two sides, quant versus fundamental, they come up with a new word called quantamental. For example, uh, oil analysts will tell you that they will look uh, each month or each week, they will look into certain industry association to um, check out the number of rigs of uh, different energy companies. But this data can be highly unstructured, meaning that there is no data vendor that's out there and uh, selling this data in a very usable form. It's up to the quant analyst, the quantitative analyst, to first uh, get access to the data and uh, number two, to make this unstructured data usable to, uh, to the quantum model and uh, number three, to um, test or um, to verify that there is actually statistic uh, significance in this data set. So that's the second example I want to, uh, I want to share with you. Um, we have seen other trends for sure. Machine learning has been a big, uh, um, uh, you know, increasing uh, area with, uh, with lots of uh, increasing interest. Alternative indexing um, is another one. And uh, ESG, so-called uh, Environmental, Social, and Governance Index, has been very much welcomed by the uh, institutional uh, investors worldwide. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Kelvin Zhang. He's a partner at Alpha Letters, a quantitative research firm trying to summarize a lot of the academic research into you know what are the, the types of things and, and trends that uh, investors can use. And so, so, Kelvin, when you think about the, the output that your team, you're, you're consuming a lot of the academic research, uh, are, are you then trying to redo some of the things, sort of replicate them yourselves and then repackage it as a way to give people the different factors? Or are you just trying to say, hey, these are the most important papers that we've read, summarized, and, and sort of pass along that, that sort of same academic papers to people? Oh, um, actually, Jeremy, we do both. Um, the, uh, if I look at our client base, it, it tends to be uh, on two extremes. On one, and there are you know some of the largest quant funds worldwide that hiring hundreds of PhDs. Uh, they like to use our service because we can. Um, because the director of research will tell me that uh, before he sent two or three of his PhDs to research on certain. Um, topic, let's say uh, alternative data, he wants to know what other people have done so that they do not have to reinvent the wheels, so to speak. Uh, on the other end of the uh, spectrum are some of the smaller uh, funds. Many of them literally only have two or three people. They will come to us and say, I find this idea interesting. Uh, you can please tell me whether it works in my specific universe. Um, so we do both. Um, back to your question, Jeremy. We um, summarize the ideas we do synthesis and uh, meaning that we compare notes with other researches we have seen and also for some of the ideas we do um, backtesting ourselves um, you mentioned uh, about sector based um, uh, like a kind of research you are seeing can you be a little bit specific oh yeah for sure um, I think the oil industry is one example that uh, that uh, I um, that I just mentioned. And the other example, uh, if I can use the banking sector as an example, um, as you know, for public companies in banking industry, their financial statements has a very different structure relative to most of the stocks, most of the companies in other industries. Um, because banks, you know, by um, nature, they have a lot of, uh, they usually have a huge um, balance sheet, but most of them are the um, money that uh, their clients, their customers put in the bank. So how do you measure the um, earnings quality of banking stocks? Um, 
about 20 years ago, a professor by the name of Richard Sloan came up with a very influential paper called uh, Earnings Quality. Um, and uh, the key idea is that uh, most companies, um, you can break the earnings into two parts. The first part is cash. The second part of earnings is non-cash. Usually cash is cash. It's hard and cold. It's, it's, it's just sitting there. So it's very hard to manipulate. But it's a lot easier to manipulate the second part, which is non-cash part. We call it accruals. So the um, um, Professor Sloan's idea is that uh, um, the higher the proportion of, of uh, accrual in the company's earning, the, most, the more likely that the company is manipulating their, uh, their earnings just to meet the expectations of uh, Wall Street analysts. But for banking stocks, you cannot use a uh, um, across, you know, by the same definition. So there is another professor, which that's why I believe there are so many great ideas, so many smart people out there. They come up with a different idea, to different way to measure the quality of a banking stocks. And the key idea is that uh, if you are a bank, then most or majority of your earning should come from um, your uh, loan interest minus the interest you pay to your customers. However, if you tell me that uh, for this quarter, you most of your earnings comes from um, you know um, com- comes from uh, something that's not as relevant to your core business, then something may be wrong. So that's another example of uh, sector-specific uh, measures. Because I think the trend we have seen is that uh, um, previously many people are looking into the same data sets, um, which is available in fact that in, in Bloomberg, which is uh, the uh, three major financial reports for different companies. Um, these days, many people want to dig deeper. Want to, when they want to answer the question that what's unique about this specific sector? What's unique about this specific industry? And in that sense, banking stock is very different from restaurant stocks. And oil stock is, has its own um, flavor as well. So by mimicking the top fundamental analysts, Quant analysts hopefully uh, will build a quant model that can um, predict the returns of different stocks. Yeah. So, so this that's what I mean by sector specific uh, research. Yeah, this is very uh, much what um, I I completely agree. If you look at a lot of uh, finance academic papers, there's a footnote which says, oh, we excluded financials from the research. But the truth is, you know, you and I know that financials is 20, 30 percent of the portfolio. (laughs) So a lot sometimes some of the academic uh, have a little bit disconnect with, you know, real portfolio management. So I think this is an area where, you know, we people in the industry can also contribute um, in understanding, in particularly in the uh, financial sector. And it's a fact sector that, you know, we, um, I'm also uh, actively looking as well. Now, I do want to uh, get a little bit more on your ESG. Uh, any any papers that uh, you're seeing in the ESG? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a very active area, trust me. Um, I think the CEO of... Uh, BlackRock famously said that uh, if you do not support the greater good of uh, uh, of our society in general, BlackRock would not invest in you. Um, so you can, you know, given the influence of BlackRock in this money management business, you can tell how important this topic has been. And people have come up with some uh, some very creative ideas 
to measure um, to measure ESG. It's actually three components, right? Uh, for example, on the um, on the uh, environmental side, there is one paper that just came out last month, and it's basically um, the title of the paper is uh, called the Pollution Premium, uh, meaning that the more pollution a company creates, the more likely that it's going to get into trouble with the government, with other, uh, with the, the society, the community in general. Uh, so that's on the E side. Uh, people can go very deep and look at the different sides of uh, environmental impact of uh, different businesses. On the G side, there are also other very interesting papers coming up. Uh, for example, there is one paper specifically talking about how to measure G, this a governance score in different continents. Uh, let me give you a quick example. For example, in Southeast Asia, you can see lots of uh, companies that, that, are, that are controlled um, by a holding family or by a controlling family. And uh, so you, you, although they are share um, uh, in, the, in the whole outstanding share pool is probably limited, but their voting power can be huge, can be, can be 99% in some cases, although they may only hold 10 or 15% of the outstanding share. So they want to differentiate the situation uh, like this, meaning that the difference between uh, the controlling family shares, the voting power versus the situation in the United States where you do not see as many controlled families of uh, public companies. Um, so th this is another example. ESG has been a very active area for for very very good reasons. Um, so and uh, accordingly, we have seen some very creative ideas coming in this, from this area. It's Kelvin. I, I know you've also been studying different uh, currency, foreign exchange type of alpha strategies. Uh, what what's your thoughts on the latest research coming out in, in that field? Um, well, I think it's a, it's a great question because um, FX or, or CTA in general has been here for such a long time, and uh, many people would argue that it's a highly efficient market. Um, but uh, there are new ideas coming out of it uh, come in this area every day. Uh, if I can use alternative data in foreign exchange as an example. So recently there is one paper talking about the, um, the, talking about the trading volume of, uh, of uh, foreign exchanges because the, the key difference between stock trading and the foreign exchange trading is that uh, stock trading has a centralized exchange. Whereas, so the exchange can easily calculate how many shares of IBM were traded yesterday. But for foreign exchange, there is no such centralized exchange. Um, so one company called uh, um, uh, CSS Bank, uh, the CLS Bank, so this is one of the largest FX settlement platform in the world. And so by nature, they have an unparalleled view of daily FX market transactions. So one paper based on these new data sets um, basically finds that if you look at the um, um, two currency pairs, both of them went up, let's say, 0.5% um, yesterday. But they find that if this price increase is accompanied by a higher volume, then chances are that you will see momentum in this um, FX rate change, meaning that it's supported. Most likely, it's supported by higher volume. Most likely, it's supported by some news or fundamental changes. 
But on the other hand, if you see a um, price increase without a volume increase, then most likely this price uh, moment, this price increase will reverse in the next couple of days. So that's what I mean. Um, the uh, the uh, ideas, you know, the cre- creativity of these uh, professors, and also the how the booming of alternative data have uh, changed many things. Uh, like this FX volume is never heard of many, um, you know, five, seven years ago. But now CLS is one of them. FXCM is another one that both are um, actively promote their um, FX volume data. When when you you know we're running out to the the bottom half of our discussion here or the final few minutes, if you think about sort of the overall approach for alpha letters and the type of services you offer, can you describe a little bit more for people who just the the your your offering your programs how people should think about using your service the types of people who might want to subscribe? Oh yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, we basically serve um, fund investors, so about. Um, I would say half of our top topic, half of the topics we cover is um, stock selection, and the rest of the topics we cover include asset allocation or CTA-related um, topics. So, for any um, fund investors that are interested in learning uh, what are the new ideas out there, and, uh, um, and and for anyone who does not want to spend tens of thousands of hours each year um, to do that because we did that uh, very labor-intensive work. Our team of uh, PhDs spend, you know, it's our basically daily job to do that. We hope to be the bridge between academia and uh, practitioners and uh, to promote the research of academia and also to benefit the money management business by using, by taking advantage of the brain power of the uh, um, academia. And uh, in this process, uh, Jeremy, I actually found a very interesting um, pattern, exactly like uh, Li Chen just said. There is a gap here. Um, it's not just because, you know, some of the research, when, when not uh, some of the uh, money managers or traders are not well informed of the newest advancement or, or uh, research in academia, but also on the other side, the researchers, the, the PhDs or professors, many of them n- do not necessarily have a trading experience before. So quite some of the uh, quote-unquote funding, findings or new alpha strategies are not necessarily usable or implementable by practitioners. So if we can bridge the gap and if we can inform the academia of uh, some of the things that they need to pay more attention to before they write any paper on market efficiency, uh, I think that will be beneficial to everybody. Um, just one last question for me. Thank you. I hope uh, this is you know useful to our listeners. Um, so you used to manage a uh, uh, emerging market uh, portfolio as well. Uh, you know, Wisdom Tree is a big uh, promo- pro- proponent of uh, hedging and dynamic hedging. What's your general view in terms of uh, you know currency hedging? Well, I think, Lisa, um, my point, uh, my view is that. Uh, Many people are expecting that the um, returns of major asset classes will not be spectacular in the coming to five, five to ten years. There are very few opportunities out there that can help an investor to reduce their cost 
to increase diversification and even potentially enhance the returns. And the currency management can, can help you reach all these goals. So in my view, uh, Western Tree has done a fantastic job and have, has helped lots of investors to um, better achieve their financial goal by providing currency managed or currency hedged in the, in the market. Because, again, uh, it's, if, I can, if I can tell you that there is a tool that can help you reduce your cost, it can help you potentially even increase your um, returns and lower your risk, I think that should be welcomed by everybody. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, thanks for joining us today. It's been a very interesting discussion. I'm Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and you're listening to the Behind the Market podcast. Our show airs live every Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 132. Talking with Peter Bookfar in the next half hour. Peter's the chief investment officer of the Bleakley Advisory Group about his global asset class views. And uh, Peter's also the editor of the Book Report, a macroeconomic market newsletter, CNBC contributor. Peter, welcome back to our program. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to have you. Wish we got to see you in person, but our, we got snowed out here today, huh? Yes, yes. I <laughs> uh, would have liked to have uh, been there in person to spend some time, but... Uh, Hopefully, this will be just as almost as good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about the Bleakley Advisory Group. So, the as sort of chief investment officer, the role you oversee, and and, and sort of the, the approach of, of Bleakley. Uh, so, Bleakley is a, a, a conventional wealth management firm. Uh, as the CIO here, uh, I manage um, a portfolio of money for clients in a global macro multi-asset strategy, um, sort of a go-anywhere approach to investing, everything from picking individual stocks to trading commodities and buying fixed income. And then I also advise uh, all the advisors here, which is about 30, uh, on how best to construct portfolios and uh, invest for their clients. But it is a, a full-service wealth management firm. I'm just focused on the uh, investment side and trying to find the best opportunities. So as you as your sort of macro strategy hat on and you're sort of looking at the, the sort of global developments, how do you look big picture U.S. foreign stocks and bonds? I mean, what's your, your general sense of uh, sort of your global outlook? Well, the market's interestingly at an inflection point. Uh, we had the, 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 the scare last year with, with growth uh, and, and particularly the influence of, of tariffs uh, in addition to the slowdown overseas and then worries about the Fed over-tightening. And then in the first two months of this year, we've gotten relief on the trade side on the hopes that the deal will be announced within the next couple of weeks. And the Fed, of course, calling a timeout on their rate hike cycle, even though the balance sheet continues to shrink uh, through the end of the year. So from here, the reason why I say there's an inflection point is I think the, the relief rally has sort of run its course, and now the market's going to focus in on where, where the fundamentals are going to take us from here in the sense of earnings growth, which has been slowing this year, and expectations for the full year have been declining. And will that trend continue? Will the slowdown that's going on in Asia uh, and all throughout Europe, particularly in Germany, uh, going to further infect the U.S.? Or upon a trade deal, is some of these worries going to dissipate and growth will pick up steam again? Uh, so very interesting spot, and even technically speaking, I'm not much of a technician, but I look at charts all day. Uh, this 2,800 level in the S&P 500 has been uh, a level of resistance multiple times uh, over the past uh, 12 to 13 months. 
Yeah, and even on just the daily basis, we poked our head above 2,800, and now we sort of dip below, and we'll see if we could get back above, right? It's sort of at that line of resistance right today. Yeah, exactly. Um, it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, when, you, when you think about Europe, I mean, I, I mean I've been watching everybody's commentary about how global PMIs, and you look at Germany, Korea, Japan, I mean, all these sort of global trade-type oriented economies, how much of is the Germany just been driven by China? And so you got sort of any sense that China starts doing better. And you saw that this week with the Shanghai up 6%, partly, you know, on Monday with 5 6%, not just the sort of China trade deal, but I I was sort of watching how their sort of stories around the the sort of government ordering them to relever and sort of having the banks increase loans by 30%. Uh, is that, do you think it's possible we're in the sort of worst of this global manufacturing slowdown and China relevering might be, the catalyst that reignites a lot of these these economies. So it's a good question. Uh, China is China is Germany's largest trading partner. So as as China goes, a lot a large part <coughs> will determine where Germany goes. Now whether this is the you know the the end of this, it, it's it's tough to say. Uh, problem is is that U.S. manufacturing is now getting impacted by the slowdown overseas. So the uh, U.S. ISM manufacturing index that came out today actually fell to the lowest level since November 2016. So it's really tough to say, well, okay, we've had this slowdown and China's going to save the world again because they're going to start to stimulate. But we know that it takes more and more debt to generate the same dollar or one of GDP in China. That um, I, I think they're not necessarily trying to stimulate for faster growth. I think they're just trying to stimulate to just cushion the moderation. So I would not be surprised if, if global growth continued to slow this year. And it also highlights the importance of the U.S. consumer and actually consumers in, in most areas because domestically, at least in China, certainly in Germany and other parts of Europe and in the U.S., that's been stronger than the industrial side or the export-dependent trade side. So where the consumer goes from here, and particularly in the U.S. since it's uh, the biggest uh, uh, cohort, uh, I think will be a big determinant of where the economy plays out the rest of the year. So, for example, is December's very poor U.S. retail sales number, was that a one-month anomaly, or that's the uh, a change in, in trend in terms of the behavior of the consumer? And considering that today we got spending and income data for, for December and the savings rate jumped up, uh, you can argue that, uh, that that's consumers are um, reining it in a bit. And um, I think t- to the extent of of that will again help to determine how the rest of the economy goes this year. So, um, sort of, if we try to summarize a little bit, I mean, the, it, there's certainly all sorts of uncertainties and all sorts of unknowns, and it was certainly the growth slowdown has been trending. But how do you sort of reflect that macro position wise? I mean, sort of, sort of CIO overseeing these portfolios, like what's your general tilts? It, it's to be defensive right now, yeah. it's to have uh, more cash on hand. Uh, sort of a, a defensive play and also optionality and dry powder to take advantage of opportunities that uh, come our way. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw another fourth quarter 2018 at some point in 2019. Uh, it's owning some gold and silver, uh, not necessarily as a so-called hedge, but if the Fed is done raising interest rates and U.S. debt and deficits <laughs> continue on the trajectory that they're on, uh, I would expect dollar weakness and gold and silver would be a beneficiary at the same time behind being a hedge, but not to own it just for that reason. And owning uh, value-type equities instead of you know, growthy names, pay more attention to PE multiples, 
because those that have big peat multiples, there's less room for error and there's less of a margin of safety. And I think investors should also be looking overseas uh, because a lot of overseas markets have been through bear markets. They've gotten pounded the last couple of years. And I think that's where there's more opportunity. And finally, on the fixed income side, uh, actually like emerging market local currency bonds. Uh, so if I think the dollar is going to weaken, and I think that um, particularly against emerging market currencies, which have traded pretty well over the past six months, and uh, growth is, is certainly, well, still tied to China, still tied to the developed world, uh, I think valuations reflect that. Well, we're talking with Peter Bookvar, the chief investment officer of the Bleakley Advisory Group, about his global asset class views, and uh, sort of interesting how you know it's uh, you can think, think about being defensively positioned, maybe in U.S., but thinking that emerging markets uh, represent value in sort of the currencies there. I mean, we it was interesting. We were looking at the sort of fourth quarter last year and when you had the U.S. really selling off, the EM had already taken the hit. So the EM was actually more defensive in the fourth quarter than the U.S. in some ways. Um, now, you know, everything that China is strongly rebounding this year on the trade and, uh, you know, all this other general discussion. But it's interesting to, to think about it that way. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with, with, with valuations as well. I mean, certainly emerging markets are not going to be immune. But, you know, take Brazil, for example. Brazil went through its own great depression, not recession, Great Depression, where they had the worst uh, span of, of declines in their economy since the 1930s. So the real, uh, the, the Bovespa, certainly reflected that sort of distress. So now they're trying to come out of it. So I think it's in the context of, of valuations and, and, and difficulties in, 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 in certain economies that uh, well, again, they're not going to be immune to issues in the U.S. or other parts of the developed world. Uh, I think the the, the markets um, have reflected, uh, certain, you know, a, a lot of that potential weakness and and uh, a, a actual weakness that we saw a couple of years ago. You know, China, interestingly, you know, the Shanghai Composite. Here we are in March 2019. It's still 50 percent, five zero percent below where it was at the peak in 2007. So yes, China has certain major growth problems. They have an extraordinarily over-leveraged economy, particularly in the banking system. But you can buy that market down more, you know, down 50% over the past 12 years. And I think those are the opportunities that I'm seeing. Very interesting. Um, you know, on the fixed income side, you know, talked about being wanting to have some cash for dry powder. When you think about the yield curve in the U.S., it's so flat, you know, when you think about where you're paid to take risk, you know, is, is duration, and you sort of mentioned sort of worries about deficits, how that might fight currencies, but do you have any view on interest rates and, um, you know, is it just cash, or do you think there's value to having the diversification from long-term bonds if you think there could be sort of big equity sell-off? I'm actually kind of worried about uh, long-term bonds. Uh, you know, while the 10-year has fallen here from three and a quarter to 275, what I found interesting about last year is that you had this difficult market, particularly in the year, at the end of the year, and long-term interest rates actually were, were, were higher by year-end, and that even even today with with uh, economic growth slowing in the U.S. I mean, the Atlanta Fed today came out with their Q1 GDP estimate of up three tenths of a percent. Uh, the New York Fed has an estimate of up nine tenths of a percent, and the ten-year U.S. ten-year is still 35 basis points above where where it ended 2017. Uh, now that said, I do think that uh, a main contributor to the performance of long-term Treasuries in the U.S. 
could be determined by you know what happens in in Europe and Japan with their bond markets. And we've seen this incredible drop and in, in compression of, of interest rates in in, in Europe uh, based on the behavior of the European Central Bank. But you wonder with the ECB now no longer expanding their balance sheet, uh, can they still uh, affect European bond yields to the extent that they have? Now, a lot of that will be determined by how long they stay in negative interest rates. Uh, I think they're kind of box themselves in because negative interest rates, I think, have proven to be uh, a failed policy uh, because it damages the profitability of one's banking system. But the potential damage to to global bond markets when when the ECB or the BOJ tries to get out of negative interest rates could be rather profound. So they're kind of stuck in it, uh, even though long term they should be trying to get themselves out of it. Uh, so if the German 10-year bond yield, for example, goes to 50 basis points or 100 basis points, um, I'm sure the U.S. 10-year yield, regardless of what's going on in the U.S., will likely be much higher. Yeah, that is one of the interesting things of what's been one of the factors constraining where our 10 years is just how low it is over there. Do you think the, the I mean, it, it, you made an interesting point, like how much the banks in Japan and Europe are being hurt by the negative rates and they think it's stimulating their economy, but is it really creating a problem, these negative rates for the banks? And will they admit that or like, are they just going to be perpetually at these negative rates? Like what's, how are they going to work themselves out of that? Well, that, that's the $64,000 question. I think the ECB will not admit that they've damaged the profitability of its banking system, which is hurtful because it's the banks that are supposed to be the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. So if you damage the profitability of banks, how do you expect to deliver monetary policy to the rest of the economy? So in June 2014, that's when the ECB went down this path of negative interest rates, and the European stock the, the, the Euro stocks bank index is down 40% since then, 40% decline. And you can look at the Japanese topics bank index. That is also down sharply uh, since the Bank of Japan went to negative interest rates and basically made the yield curve as flat as a pancake out to 10 years. So it's a failed policy, and we all, for some reason, seem to want to repeat everyone, everyone else's mistakes. Uh, the Bank of Japan made a clear mistake over the past 30 years in their policy, and the European Central Bank and the Fed seemed uh, intent on repeating it. And just listening to the commentary of, 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 of our Fed members, and you know, they all think that you know, lowering rates back down and, and doing more QE, like that somehow is, 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 is the path to do something. But um, we've now built up a, a, a volume of, of evidence to say that this does not work in stimulating global growth. And if anything, all it does is add to more leverage, and you add more leverage, and that leads to even slower growth. Yeah, so it's it's going to be interesting how all how they all work themselves out. I mean, there was some commentary. I mean, sort of going getting back and forth between the different Feds and the global central banks. Do you, do you have a view on how you know? the Fed this year is going to play out? One of the, I think I saw a story that maybe the Fed would start increasing rates later this year again. You know, they sort of paused. They've seen the markets go back up. Financial conditions go get better with the, the market rising. Do you think they're going to whipsaw us again with a just talk of another rate hike? Well, I think they want to. They, they, they didn't want to stop at two and a quarter, two and a half. That, that was not the plan for uh, ending this rate hike cycle. The, the, the plan was to get to about 3%. Which, if you add in a two percent inflation rate, that implies a one percent real rate. 
so that the Fed is, is now having to pause after a two and a quarter, two and a half percent Fed funds rate and, and already looking to stop ending the shrinkage of their balance sheet tells you that, you know, external factors uh, cause that. So in the eyes of the Fed, well, yeah, if they raise interest rates, that means that things are better and they'd be comfortable doing that. So they want to raise a couple more times, but I don't know if the data is going to allow them. Yeah. Any other um, sort of when you look across the world, so so emerging markets is is part of that view. So emerging market bonds, uh, particularly, any other countries in in the emerging markets that you're you're attracted to? Um, I also I like Vietnam. I think Vietnam is a beneficiary of a lot of manufacturing that's leaving China. Uh, Vietnam being a low cost manufacturer, so I think their economy is going to continue to grow. And um, I also like India. I love many of the things that Modi has implemented. Now, there's a big election this year that uh, he will likely win, but have less of a majority. But I still think a lot of his uh, policies that he implemented, particularly the uh, global, <coughs> I'm sorry, the, the goods and services tax, which unifies a lot of existing taxes, and more of a pro-business friendly type approach, certainly compared to previous governments, uh, will be a big help. And then one more international market that I, I, I find intriguing, and uh, I'm sure you, if you polled 100 people, 99 would say they are not invested there, and that is Greece. And that is because there's a, a, an important presidential election this year where the uh, opposition party, the new democracy party, led by Kyriakos Mitsotakis, is expected to win, and he's a very business-friendly politician. And compared to the Bernie Sanders-type politician that's currently in place, uh, it would be, I think, a big game-changer for the Greek economy. And speaking of going through a Great Depression, like Brazil did, uh, Greece has certainly gone through their own Great Depression. The Athens stock market, in fact, is down about 85% from its 2007 peak. Wow. Um, hi, this is Li Chen. Uh, I have a question. Usually in your um, allocations for your clients, like how frequent do you de- do these kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, de- rebalances, like a monthly or, or quarterly or annual? And the other question is, like, what kind of factors uh, or do you ever consider uh, in terms of til- tilting uh, in going forward? Well, the, the, rebalancing, the rebalancing doesn't take place that much. I don't really trade that much in the portfolio. Uh, particularly now with being wanting to be more dis- defensive. A lot of the cash that comes in from dividends and interest income goes to cash until I find a new idea. Uh, in terms of the factors, I'm, I'm a value investor. I, I focus on uh, things that are inexpensive and have what I believe positive long-term uh, outlook and tailwind to their business So as to avoid a value trap. Uh, so it's, 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 it's really those two things, finding good businesses that have tailwinds in terms of the, the big picture and also trying to buy them at an inexpensive price. And I tend to avoid technology because it's so disruptive and things change so much, and it's certainly not one of my expertise in trying to time when um, things are hot, when they're not, and, and when th- sometimes when they go from hot to not. Any uh, other places you want to highlight for our listeners that, that you guys are focused on at, uh, at Bleakley Advisory Group? Yeah, I think uh, you know a lot of things I talked about um, really is, is in my defensiveness is, is where I see things, at least this year, you know, for investors that are long-term in, in, in focus and, and 
uh, don't need to necessarily have to worry about some of the things that that I'm talking about here. But you know, one one big factor I think that that people have to understand is that in this new monetary world that we're in, where negative interest rates is sort of the norm and QE is is the norm, um, that when we do get the next economic downturn, whenever that might be, you can't rely on central banks to bail us out uh, because they're not going to have many tools at which to do so. You know, look at the Fed funds rate. Let's just say the Fed is done here at a range of two and a quarter, two and a half. The previous uh, peak in the Fed funds rate was five and a quarter, which Bernanke took to zero. Before that, Greenspan took the Fed funds rate from six and a half to one. Now, that didn't stop the bear markets then, didn't stop the economy from going into recession, and they had a lot more breathing room in terms of rate cuts to, to, to move. Here, we're going to be cutting 200 basis points and, and, and praying that that's going to matter. But it's really not, because when rates are low anyway, and there's still, you know, there's a lot of leverage in the economic system, particularly on the corporate balance sheet side, we're not going to really respond to the lower cost of money, just as the Japanese did not. So, it's, with that, so that, that said, it's really important to all of a sudden now pay attention to valuations, pay attention to, to, to what you own, and, and, and not to invest blindly, which worked wonders for 10 years when rates were here at zero and, and QE was on around the world. Uh, that has now changed. I mean, the Bank of Japan is, is, is slowing the pace of the purchases. As I mentioned, the ECB is no longer expanding the size of their balance sheet. So yeah. a lot more work and a lot more research needs to be done. And uh, you have to be willing to ride out uh, many more bouts of volatility uh, than we've seen over the past couple of years. On that note, uh, sort of dour note, but uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining. Uh, we have to wrap up the show, but thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks, Jeremy. We've been talking with Peter Bookfar, CIO of Beakley, Chief Investment Officer of Beakley Advisor Group. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to Lee Chen, our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. This is on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 